to another episode of socal watch reviews i am miguel today we are joined by a very special friend of the channel fred from shaluso we've been planning this podcast for god i think uh, going on a month now i something like that and we haven't been able to do so just because we're in different parts of the world i am in southern california it's currently 6 9 a.m my time so if i sound a little tired it's because I am. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let me introduce Fred. Fred, how are you? How's it going, Miguel? Glad we can finally put this together. Yeah, it's no, been, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while making because, yeah, we've been planning this since a little bit before my trip to Singapore. Right now I'm in India. It's coming up to 6.40 in the evening. So I'm a little bit more awake than you, I would imagine. But I can sympathize <laughs> with uh, what happened to get up early. But yeah, glad we can finally get this, uh, get this happening. Yeah, no, absolutely. So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your channel? I know you and I kind of talked about it and we started our channels pretty much at the same time, around the same time, like six, seven months ago. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I started my channel was uh, December of last year. So at like the nine month mark thereabouts. So I think I started a little bit before yours, but uh, I remember really early on, uh, you start commenting on mine. I checked out your stuff and been sort of following each other back and forth. So it's it's cool seeing how, like, we sort of grown it at the same time. Um, about my channel, well, of course, you know, we're all here for watches. Um, I started my channel pretty much based on, so I uh, got my first luxury watch last year. And I knew nothing about watches when I was looking for it. So pretty much I went ham on, uh, you know, Urban Gentry, Federico Talks Watches, uh, the watch box reviews, just binge watching all of those to figure out the best watch to get. I ended up going with the uh, Omega Seamaster Professional, the second gen one. So it was just before they had released the Wave Dial one. Um, and from that, I just thought, you know, hey, you know, there's probably a lot of other people like me who are in that position where, you know, they want to buy their first luxury watch, but there's so much choice out there. And, you know, not everyone, especially. These days, you know, even if you have the money for a retail Submariner, not everyone has that clout that they can, you know, get in on a wait list easily. And they'll probably have the nasty surprise. I was even thinking, oh, maybe I should save a bit more and get a Submariner and found out that you have to either pay like one and a half retail or you have to wait forever just to be able to pay it at retail. So um, yeah, that's kind of the background of how I started. And it just sort of evolved in sort of sharing my journey and learning more about watches. Um, so yeah, so that, that's sort of like a bit of background for, for your, uh, for your listeners on sort of how I started out. Wow. No, well, kudos to you for getting a, an Omega Seamaster as your first watch. That's incredible. Most of us, our first watch really is either a Timex or Seiko or something sub, uh, what, three, $4,000, whatever you pay. That's, yeah. that's, that's crazy, but kudos to you. So let me ask you, what got you into watches? Cause if you just got into watches not so long ago, what, what was that one thing that? The click um, for you. It was, it was literally just the journey of of doing all the research. So like I had had a watch before. Like my very first watch that I actually bought for myself was back when I was like seventeen. Bought myself a Tissot, um, oh, little nice. quartz stainless steel thing. I was I was living in Spain at the time. It was like two hundred 
250 euros, something like that. Um, and pretty much had that for a solid 10, 11 years. I still have it. And, and then just, you know, after a while, I thought, you know, it's, I've come to that point. I want to buy myself a nice watch. And then, like I said, it was just in that journey of doing all the research about what watch should I get that I fell in love with watches. And so I just sort of kept at it and got lightly addicted. Lightly, lightly addicted. You know, it's it's a funny, it, it's a funny <laughs> journey because the same thing happened to me, right? I was I was into watches, but you know, fashion watches or whatever, Armani and, and the Invictus and stuff like that. But but it wasn't it just like you. It wasn't until I wanted to pick up a, a another watch, I started doing my research and went down the rabbit hole and, on YouTube. And same thing, like you, just TGV and Frederick talks watches. And then you discover this subculture of watches that you're like, wow, this is not when, when I go to the store and look at these watches on display, Macy's, Nordstrom, whatever. Um, you don't think of things like that. You're like, oh, yeah. cool. They, they look pretty. And, and how is that going to look with my outfit? And that's that's all I think most people think about. But, yeah, thinking about the movement and, you know, the heritage and all that. Uh, it, it's a little different and it's very fitting to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about value and watches. And I wanted to uh, bring Fred on board because if you check out his channel, he really goes in depth when he reviews a watch. I do more of a light kind of review overall, you know, specs. But Fred really, really digs into into the watches, which I really appreciate because if you own that particular model or even if you don't, uh, he really gives you a sense of is this something of value is this something that you want to pick up so we're definitely going to talk about that but before we move uh, on uh wristwatch check and i'll let you go first what, what are you wearing today i am wearing my recently purchased cartier pasha c timer it's a reference w310 m7 uh the only reason i remember that is from searching it so many times <laughs> trying to find the right one um, this is my first pre-owned watch that I got. I actually traded my to the Black Bay Chrono to get it. Um, but yeah, I'm loving it. I've had it for two, three weeks now and still very much in the honeymoon phase on that. So what made you uh, get this specific uh, Cartier model versus the other one, like a Santos or like obviously the Tank, which is everybody and their mom knows that. Is there a particular reason why you got this model? Uh, the, well, the Santos I love. Um, I'm a big fan of, um, of Michael Douglas and Wall Street. He's got the solid gold Santos. So I, yep. I was mm -hmm. thinking I should get a Santos. But um, what I love about the Pasha is that, A, no one really knows about it. And I have this thing where I, I like having stuff that's, like, that's different. I don't like having the, like, the typical, typical thing. Um, like, you know, my Seamaster, I made sure I purposely got one without waves on it. You know, I got the Cartier that isn't the Santos of the tank. Um, but also like the history behind it. So like it has a, just a quick overview, like, like most uh, sort of iconic Cartier models, it has a basis in an original commission. So it was originally, the story goes at least that was commissioned by the Pasha of Marrakesh, uh, who was like kind of like the king of Morocco to put it in really simple terms. Um, this was back in like the twenties or thirties and he wanted a watch that he could, you know, go swimming in and then also attend like royal functions and stuff. So he uh, commissioned it to Cartier and then they made it and then started putting it into production. Then it kind of died out for a bit. And in 1985, uh, Gerald Gento was commissioned to redesign it and revive it. So oh, like wow. it was also a way to get in on that sort of Gerald Gento design, but not with your typical 
you know, Royal Oak and Nautilus. So um, that was also a big appeal as well, to have a little piece of that Gerald Genta history without having to, like, mortgage my life. Yeah, pretty that's, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. And listeners, I don't know, that that's kind of, uh, Fred just gave us a little bit about the the feel uh, about how his uh, YouTube channel kind of goes. He really that, that's me trying to be concise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually goes a little bit deeper in in his channel. That's something that I love about his channel. I I just learned so much, and uh, that's so cool. I didn't know that Genta designed this. And like you said, yeah, of course, everybody talks about the Universal Geneve and and the Royal Oak, and uh, you know, of course, the Patek. But yeah, I had no idea about this design. I'm actually looking it up right now, and it is very, very cool. And very cool to see. So is it a chronograph? Because the ones I'm looking at here are chronographs. So you have the... No, st- I have the okay. standard 300 with the date and with the dive bezel. Um, so it's still 100 meter water resistant. Oh, okay. Uh, despite looking deceptively dressy, uh, it's the 2008 model. So it's 40 millimeter. That was oh, like nice. the last generation okay. of it before they discontinued it um stainless steel nice sort of on in pictures it looks like it's a white dial but in person as the light hits it it's actually got a bit of a silvery tone to it oh and one thing i love about the dial is it's just got so many levels like you've got a steps date window it's actually got this sort of like square in the middle that's sort of a little bit elevated and that's got the railroad seconds track around it so like there's just so many dimensions to it. I love just staring at it and seeing how the light reflects off all the different edges. Yeah, no, Gentle is definitely a master of of creation and design, and it's just so awesome to see a lot of the things. And it's funny. I mean, when he first designed, of course, everybody knows the story. The Royal Oak it wasn't well received, and everybody kind of hated it. But now, I mean, everybody wants it, right? So he was definitely yeah. a master of, of of his own craft and. And that's super cool. Now, is there something you didn't like about that tutor? Because I think that tutor is gorgeous. I mean, I, I would have kept it um, and maybe saved up for another watch. But, of course, everybody does different things, whatever they could afford or however they could do things. But is there something you didn't like about it that just kind of made you fall out of love with that watch? Or? Um, so I'm going to make a video on this. But the sort of short answer is that I think I bought the tutor for the wrong reasons. You know, I oh, bought it okay. sort of like an, an intermediary to scratch an itch. Um, thinking, oh, you know, it's a tutor, it'll probably hold its value, I can just buy it, hold it for a bit and sell it, and then sort of get something else. Um, I've come to realize, and this is why, like, it's fun having a channel, because I can share these experiences, you know, with this little exercise, I've realized, you know, you shouldn't buy watches just to scratch an itch, you know, you should wait till you get what you really want, as opposed to getting something you kind of like, but you don't plan on keeping it, because... For example, if I compare owning my Tudor versus my Omega, my Omega, I've never considered selling it. Uh, and I don't think I ever will. Whereas my Tudor, and don't get me wrong, it's an amazing watch. Really, really, really good watch. Um, but my Tudor, like if I didn't wear it for a little while, I would start thinking, why do I even have this? I might as well just sell it. <laughs> Having said that, when I would wear it, then I'd be like, fuck, this is actually a really cool watch. But the <laughs> yeah. fact that I had that feeling from time to time that I should sell it kind of told me that the writing's on the wall and that it's just not going to be a keeper in my collection, you know? Um, but it's still an amazing watch. Really, really cool. Again, another one that's nice and distinctive. It's got a few sort of cues of the Daytona, but not a complete ripoff. And also, there's so many black bays out there, but there's only one original Chrono. Funnily enough, though, now they've, they just released a black PVD version of it. I saw that. They yeah. just released, <laughs> they, uh, released earlier in Basel the silver and gold one. 
So another thing, retrospectively, I think it's kind of good that I sold it now because I imagine those two are going to get a lot of the attention and probably the resale value would have maybe gone down a little bit more as, you know, the new models keep coming out and they keep expanding on that line. Yeah. And you hit two points that are that are very, very interesting to me. Number one, and, and this is to everybody out there, maybe you're new to the watch world. Maybe you, you are a collector. Maybe you've been into watches for a long time, but uh, Fred hit a really, really good point. Don't buy something to scratch an itch because you want to buy something more. And that's true uh, for me as well. So I, I saved my money. I sold some of my pieces, like four of, of my watches in my collection. One of them was a Sarb, uh, Seiko Sarb 033. I got rid of it to buy an Omega Speedmaster. Of course, I couldn't afford the the, the moon version, the, the big one, the regular one. So I went for the reduced and I was excited, you know, I talked to my wife and she clearly doesn't care about watches. She thought it was too expensive. She thought I was crazy. But at the same time, it was my money because it was for my watches and some birthday money that I saved up. And I got that thing in the mail to reduce the Omega Speedmaster reduce the uh, 3510, I believe. And I just didn't like it too much. Uh, I, I just felt it was too small. And I ended up... Um, getting rid of it and i was super disappointed and i'm like well well there goes my my plan of owning an omega speedmaster because i don't have another 1500 or 2000 dollars saved up to to get it and i was super disappointed so i kept doing research but then i came across the the one i have now the omega speedmaster uh and, and it is a reduced it's an automatic but it's a 3511 the reverse panda when i saw that i just completely yeah. fell in love and i was like you know what by me buying this watch this is not me trying to get the moon watch because it's completely different you know and and i started looking into it and of course there was a limited release only in japan so that even uh made me like it even more because i'm a huge uh fan of things made in japan like cars and seiko and stuff like that so yeah every time i wear it or even when i look at it i don't even think about the other omega or the other speedmaster or even thinking of getting rid of it so back to fred's point just uh, if you want something, don't don't compromise. Either save or get something completely different that, that you like. And then point number two that you made that I think is very uh, interesting, you talk about uh, that tutor and, you, and the resale value and this and that. And it's kind of, it's sad, but it's true that people just look at watches now as a monetary thing, right? As an investment. And it's kind of sad because it's like all these people are just picking up watches just based on that, you know, Oh, how much is this going to be worth? It's like a commodity. Right. And it's, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, it's, it's a part of it because you're spending so much of your money and you're like, okay, I'm going to invest or spend this much money. Is it going to be worth anything on the, you know, at the end, but if you really love what you're buying, then you're not going to sell it. So what does it really matter? You know? So I don't know. It's kind of (laughs) conflicting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like at the end of the day, if you're buying it with the intention of selling it, then really how much do you want it? And let's face it, you know, these are watches, whether you're buying them at the $200 point, at the $2,000 point or the $20,000 point, these are all things that let's face it, we don't need. You know, we all have phones that tell us the time we're getting watches because we there's some level of desire, you know, so like, at least my philosophy on it is if you're buying it because you want it, make sure you actually want it. And you know, like that's at least the way I look at it. And I've come to realize in practice that I should probably practice that a little bit more often. <laughs> and we'll practice that with yeah. my, some of my own advice with, uh, with that, with regards to my future purchases, like this Cartier, for example, like I have no intention of selling, you know, and it's, and it was actually really nice and liberating, not thinking about resale value when I bought it, 
because it's like, well, it's not going to be relevant to me. If it gains value, if it loses value, I'm not going to see the other end of that because I'm going to have it on my wrist. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. It's, it's, it is very liberating because if you're, if you're just thinking about that and, and all of a sudden that, that brand that you just bought into uh, does something really dumb and the resale value just goes down, then you're heartbroken and you're like, oh, I made a mistake. But if you really don't care and you're like, oh, okay, cool, they're not worth this much, but I still love it, then it's fine. Yeah. But I think we're moving away from my wristwatch check, which is kind of <laughs> fitting to what we're going to talk about. And, and, and what I was going to talk about was uh, my Sarb. And, and the reason I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm wearing it, my Seiko uh, Sarb 033. I love this thing. I, I find myself just wearing it more and more. Uh, and this is a watch that I got rid of to get the Omega Speedmaster reduced. And the minute I kid you not that I, I posted up for sale and it wasn't selling, it wasn't selling, but my, my significant other was kind of asking, she's like, so I know you still need a little bit of money. Cause you already bought the Speedmaster reduced kind of knowing that you were going to sell the SARB. So is it selling or where, where are we going with this? You know, cause it was almost like 400 bucks and I'm not rich. So 400 bucks is a lot of money, you know? Um, so I'm like, no, yeah, it's up there selling. And I was praying to God that it wouldn't sell. Cause I was like, oh, the longer that I keep it maybe she'll forget. And then I'll take it off. You know, I won't <laughs> sell it anymore. And the minute I started thinking that it sold, I was like, oh no. And I was, it was on eBay. So I sold it on eBay. So as I was packaging it and I went to the UPS store, I was literally almost in tears. And I was like, I'm a grown man in my mid thirties, <laughs> almost having like a crisis here, crying over this little Seiko watch. What's wrong with me? I knew immediately I made a mistake. So a few months passed, of course. And I, you know, talked to my wife and I was like, I, I think I made a mistake. I really like that watch. So I'm going to save up a little bit. And sure enough, I, I bought another one. And, and that just really taught me a lesson that like, Hey, if you really want something, don't get rid of something that you really like, because then you're going to want it back in the collection. Just wait a little bit longer, you know? So that's what I'm wearing today. And maybe that's why I find myself wearing it so much because it has some kind of sentimental value to me, which is funny thinking back at that story, but, uh, but it does. It means so much. And the reason I'm wearing it or a Seiko is because of the topic at hand. So Fred, uh, if you couldn't tell by now, He's more into the luxury pieces and I'm more into the affordable pieces. Not that I don't like the luxury pieces. Of course, I love them, but I can't afford them. And because I have an itch uh, so big for watches, Seiko has always been there for me from the beginning. My first watch, my first true automatic watch was the Seiko SKX 007. I still have it in the collection and I love it. I wore it yesterday and it just, I don't know what it is about it that, that just really speaks to me and it makes me happy and I don't really care what people think about it or it's just, and that's the thing about watches, you know, you could go about it the wrong way, but let's start our, our discussion here, our topic. And, and one of the main things I want to talk about, uh, about this whole value in watches is, so what do you get for the money? Right? So Fred, I'll let you go first. You, you got the luxury watches. So start it off for us. All right. So with luxury watches, obviously, you know, you're spending a lot more money, um, regardless of where you are serving so that tier, the entire point of luxury is it's all about added value. And that's kind of manifests itself. There's some tangible elements of that and some intangible elements. Um, starting with, I guess, the tangible physical stuff. Obviously, when you're looking at luxury watches, one of the big things these days is, um, is in-house movements. Um, so there's a lot more prestige that comes with when the manufacturer actually makes their own movement versus buying one from someone else. Uh, it can really sort of dilute the perceived value 
when you have, for example, I've uh, I've reviewed an IWC pilot and a tag Hoyer Carrera. Now those are about thousand thousand five hundred US apart from each other in uh, in retail value, but they both have the same movement. So then it's like, well, how do you justify that extra value on the IWC? Um, so that's definitely one thing is that can bring a lot of those comparisons that are a little bit uncomfortable in the luxury space. Another one is finish. So um, things like whether they're hand finished, whether there's differential between satin and polish, these are all things that at the end of the day, you know, the company needs to pay someone to do that or, or they have to have a machine that can do that. That adds to the cost of it, but it also adds to the value of it, adds to how interesting the, um, the watch is. And then the last sort of tangible value is the materials. Obviously, you know, most watches are stainless steel, but also you have stuff like titanium, you have ceramic, which is scratch proof. Obviously you have gold when you start getting precious metals, but then you have, uh, they have platinum, of course, you have white and rose gold. With white gold, it can either be gray gold, which is essentially one homogenous material that's harder to make and more expensive, but also if it scratches, it's more white gold underneath. Or you have rhodium plated or nickel plated, it's a little bit cheaper, and that you scratch it underneath and you have regular gold. Um, and then with rose gold, everyone has their different mix. You know, you've got Hublot's King Gold, Omega has their Sedna that they also use with Blanc Pan, Rolex has their Ever Rose. So those are all like, those are all physical traits and aspects that can add to the value. But then you have the intangibles, which is the brand value. Um, best example of that is Rolex. You know, people are willing to pay more than what Rolex is charging to get a Rolex. And that tells you something about how people really ascribe value to a brand. Um, obviously, it's something that's totally recognizable. It's a status symbol that transcends just enthusiasts like us. You know, you can have someone who knows absolutely nothing about watches, show them the Samaritan and they'll say, that's a Rolex. <laughs> and to a lot of people that has a value. Um, and that's usually that's our brand value is built on a reputation in excelling in some of those tangible fields. But it's also, it also comes once they've gotten past that where, you know, people are willing to pay for more than just what you're physically getting. Um, so, yeah, so that's my take, especially from, I guess, the more luxury perspective on what contributes and what can add to the cost at the end of the day is those extra values um, that hopefully you, you assume that, you know, a more expensive watch will have that, but some, some don't. And, you know, we'll talk about some of those uh, examples a bit later today. Um, but, yeah, so that's my take from the luxury end. But I was actually really curious to understand because, because I had have absolutely nothing against sort of the lower end of watches. I really appreciate them. I just never ended up getting into them. I ended up, uh, I guess, buying into the hobby a little bit high. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I sort of missed a lot of that experience. But in learning more about watches, I've learned that there's also like a lot of, a lot of really cool watches and, and so much variety as well in that sort of sub $1,000 mark. Yeah. Um, so it'd be good to sort of get your perspective and see like how to navigate the value, you know, when you have two, $200 watches next to each other, how do you discern which one is the better value? Yeah, absolutely. So you hit on a really good, good points out there. And uh, I, I liked the, the tab when you started with the tangible talking about in-house movements, because I agree with you. I mean, it's how, how do you have the same movement on two watches and have them be $2,000 apart? It, it just, it's just crazy. It really comes down to the brand and uh, in, in, it's that intangible, right? But um Seiko has, and I think a lot of people know this, they have their own in-house movement. And in fact, they even grow their own crystal. So everything from the case, the crystal, the movement, the bracelet, 
everything is in-house, everything is Seiko. And I think they, they made a mistake initially in promoting themselves, marketing themselves on that lower end tier. And you see that now. I think they're starting to realize that now because a lot of the newer models that are coming out, including the new SKX, where people keep calling, which is not, it's just a Seiko 5 that looks like an SKX, their retail value, or at least what they're, what they're, what's on paper, it's a lot more expensive than what the SKX was selling for. And then also the Alpen is that they just announced it's going to be released in the three color wave. It's going to come out like at, I think, 700 bucks, 800 bucks. And that's crazy when you think about it. You're like, it's a Seiko. Why are they selling so expensive? Because they they do have the, the it, it is a valuable thing. Well, not not in precious metals or, or in finishing because it, it really isn't. But when you um, when you kind of know what it is, you really respect it. I mean, the fact that you can get a Seiko Five now with their you know very entry level movement, the Seven S Two Six movement, non hackable, non windable, you could get it for a hundred bucks. In fact, you go on Amazon, pick it up for like sixty bucks. That's incredible, right? Because you're like, I'm holding in my hands something that's in house, a hundred percent, and it's sixty bucks. What? That's kind of crazy. So I really think that um, Seiko realized that early enough, and then they they started really promoting heavily Grand Seiko. I know they're two different entities or companies or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's the same business, right? So uh, to go back to your point, um, yeah, if you have two, let's say $200 watches and they're next to each other, um, you could definitely tell the difference. I, I like Seiko just because they're a little bit, uh, better finishing in my, in my opinion and they have that rich kind of history and i'll give you an example so the skx um double seven double nine the the smaller version as well i mean you're having uh, that watch has 200 meter water resistance screw down crown iso certified i mean come on it, it, it has all that for 200 bucks that's pretty insane you don't really see that if that was a swiss watch that would be 1500 bucks right um, a lot of the watches from Oris, and I, I really like them, right? I, I, I love the Oris Diver 65. It, I don't think it has any of those certifications, and it's not even using an in-house movement. So it's like, all right. So just because it's a Swiss watch, it's a lot more expensive. That's kind of insane to me. Uh, as far as finishing, of course, you, you could tell the level. So when I look at my Seiko SKX versus my Seiko Sarb, you could totally tell the difference. I mean, the finishing, uh, the crystal, for instance. So one of the pet peeves that I have against the SKX is that it has uh, just the regular crystal in it. Uh, and the other one, the Sarb, has an acrylic crystal. So it's like, why is it really that expensive to put this crystal on? Uh, you know, and it has a bit, way better movement, of course. SKX, the 7S26 movement, and then the SARB has the 6R15 movement. And that one you can wind, that one you can hack. So you could definitely tell, but you could still pick up a SARB, even though they've been discontinued. You could still pick them up for less than 500 bucks. So, I mean, you're getting, a, in my opinion, what is a quality watch. Now, when I look at that watch, when I look at the SARB compared to my Omega, and the Omega's from the 90s, I could tell the difference. I could tell the quality. I could tell the 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 just the finishing and and how they put it together. I mean, you could feel them even by picking them up when you wind them. I mean, you could feel the movement. Uh, and that Omega doesn't even have an in-house movement; it has a Belgian movement in it. But it, it just feels more tidy, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. Um, so yeah, I would recommend anybody out there 
and getting into this watch phase, like really do your homework because what happens to a lot of us collectors and obviously it didn't happen to Fred, but what happens to a lot of us is you pick up these inexpensive watches just because you're like, well, they're inexpensive and I could pick them up and they're attainable. And then you start looking into more watches and more watches going down the rabbit hole. And then you end up wanting more expensive watches and end up selling a lot of the things that you initially bought. So if you start out with like Fred and, and, buy high then chances of you getting rid of those higher end pieces are in my opinion i i guess you're less likely to do that you know what i mean and then materials of course you're not gonna have i mean you could potentially buy a gold watch for sub one thousand dollars but you're really gonna have to do your research uh but new there's just no way that you're gonna buy a precious metal watch right and then lastly i guess the intangible is the prestige right it's like, yeah, of course, you can't compare Seiko to Rolex. It's just no way. I mean, nobody can really compete with Rolex right now. I mean, they're kind of in a league of their own. But uh, but yeah, when you walk around with, let's say, a Seiko, since we're talking about it, and you paid uh, $700 for it, people are not either A, going to believe you, or B, even care because you're wearing a Seiko at the end of the day. I mean, they could put the coolest movement in there. Heck, they could even make the watch out of titanium if they want but normal people on the street because they see them on Macy's or, or, you know, whatever. I don't think they're, they're worth as much in front of other people's uh, eyes. And I know Fred and I were kind of touching base on Grand Seiko because we're talking about prestige or whatever. So it's like, if you want to impress other, uh, just the world in general, buy a Rolex. But if you want to impress other collectors and people know that, you know, what's up with watches then get a Grand Seiko, you know, so that's, that's kind of my take on it. It's like I don't have anything against the higher-end brands, but the fact that I can't afford them, that's why I focus so much on the lower-end things on my channel and the podcast, and that's what I own, you know? So, Yeah, and I think you brought up one really good point as to also why I stayed further away from the lower-end is because that rabbit hole. I sometimes yeah. think that if I start getting some cheaper watches, I'm going to start getting more and more of them, and then that's going to kind of eat up my money for being able to get a higher end one because obviously like I have some nice pieces but also I'm not rolling it I'm not making uh Richard Meal money so <laughs> like for me it's also I still have to save when I want to get my nice stuff so um so yeah so like one thing I do I do worry about is I think like okay you know I can get I can have a uh you know I can get eight five hundred dollar watches or I can wait hold on to that money for a bit more and then I can get a four thousand dollar watch um yeah. and i feel like i would do a lot of that itch scratching and then probably like it would end up being like crack for watches for me if that, <laughs> if, if that, sort, of analogy, if that sort of analogy would happen you know I'd yeah for the, for, the, for the big hit um but but yeah like that's one concern because especially when i was um when i was getting think thinking to myself you know because like i was living in chile right after i bought my omega i was thinking to myself all right i need to get a Vita watch because you know, just in case I go to some areas where I really don't want my nice watch taken. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of looking at like, okay, should I get something on the cheaper end? You know, I went to a couple of stores and felt them around, but also you're right. There is a certain quality difference you feel. And when you wind them uh, in the bracelets, I've noticed you is where you, you can really feel the difference. You know, you hold yeah. something like, like I'm sure if you hold your Omega versus, um, versus some of your Seikos, in the bracelet, you can feel that sort of tightness. Yeah. And it's not something that you notice on the day-to-day, but you still sort of know it's there. Um, so, yeah, so when I was looking into that, I saw a lot of very tempting options, and I thought, 
it, it was almost as if like, okay, if I don't spend too much on this, I'm going to start getting more and more, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I think it's okay, though, if you, well, if you could afford it, of course, it's okay yeah. to, um, to get something on the lower end that kind of resembles the more expensive piece you want to get. So say, for instance, you're like, I'm not really sure if I like um, dressy watches because I'm more of a sports guy or whatever. It's okay to get an Orion Bambino. I mean, you have a, a, a company that, again, in-house for sub $200. That's insane, right? And it's like, you know, it's a, it's a cool little watch and it's a beater watch. And hey, if you have kids, um, you could give it to them, right? And be like, hey, this is, at yeah. the end of the day, if you, if you really think about it, and I'll give you an example. It's so funny. So I, I just picked up a new suit, right? Because I'm like, I didn't have one and I do need it maybe sometimes for work, for special occasions. I didn't have one because uh, all my old ones either didn't fit or they're too old. So I picked it up and I'm like, you know what? I need a new belt and new shoes. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I went to Nordstrom Rack. I don't know for anybody living outside the U.S. Nor- there's Nordstrom, which is a really kind of expensive store, but there's Nordstrom Rack, which is kind of like the things that didn't sell or I don't, I don't think they're it's like the outlet. items. It, exactly. It's like the outlet. So I went, I always go there. I never go to Nordstrom because I'm like, I'm not dumb. I'm not going to pay the, the retail price. I'm just going to go. They're still new. They're the same store is just an outlet. So I went, yeah. I saw some some shoes, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I was looking at the price, you know, and they're an okay brand, Steve Madden, which I'm like, okay, you know, they're kind of known, and the belt. And, um, man, everything came out to be, like, 70 bucks, and I was, I did not want to pay it. I am so cheap. I am, I'm like, dang, for <laughs> shoes and a belt, 70 bucks? Are you kidding me? Like, I was thinking, <laughs> and then I get in my car, and I'm like, yet, I think that a Seiko 5 for 100 bucks is cheap. I'm like, oh my goodness, what the heck is going on? What had what has happened to me that that when I'm talking to my wife and I'm like, oh, this this watch, can you believe this? This is only fifteen hundred dollars, and she looks at me like, are you only fifteen hundred dollars? That's a lot of money. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and and it's true. The more you start getting into watches and and um, buying them, you look at money differently when it comes to them. But when you look at other things in your life, everything's expensive. At least for me, you know. So. I think that's kind of funny, but going back to my full circle to my Orient Bambino kind of example is before, if you could afford it, before you get that more expensive piece, I, I do recommend number one, trying to find an AD and actually seeing that piece in person because you're going to be disappointed if you just buy it in the mail and it doesn't fit the way you like it to fit because that's what happened to me with the Speedmaster Reduced. And number two, if you're not if you can, you're trying to get a dressy watch and you've never been into dressy watches and you just really want to see how, how that dressy watch kind of goes with your day-to-day life, get something less expensive that you could sell or give to somebody else. That's just my take on that. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's a great way to try stuff out. Definitely, um, you know, if you can go to an AD, that's the first part of call. That's one thing that definitely, like, you know, a lot of people talk about how, like, oh, is, you know, brick and mortar dying. Yeah. I think especially with watches, Especially when, you know, with so many of us, like, we can't just, like, buy these one after the other and, you know, and um, have, if, if we don't like it, just, you know, burn on a shelf somewhere. You know, we all still kind of need it to fulfill what we wanted it for. Um, but, yeah, you know, we still need to be able to try it on. And that's something where I think definitely brick and mortar will always have its place. You know, I've, I looked at countless of this, of uh, this Cartier. I looked at countless examples online. But I didn't buy it until I actually barred in, in a store. Mm-hmm. So um, there's definitely always a space for that. And you bring up a great point that 
entry-level watches are a great way to sort of try things out. Uh, with, um, with the beta watch I ended up getting, I ended up getting a Steinhardt Ocean 1 GMT. I kind of tried to hit two birds with one stone because at one point I wanted a um, Rolex 16710 uh, Coke bezel GMT. So I thought, all right, you know, I'll get one that kind of looks similar enough so I can try it out, see if I like how it looks before I spend, you know, 10 times the amount. You know, I don't have <laughs> ten, 10 grand at the time. Now I think they're up around 11 or 12 even to spend on a, on a Rolex. So I thought, all right, I'll try it out. So in that sense, it's kind of served its purpose. Um, but then also it sort of brings up the whole homage debate, but that's something probably we can do yeah. for another podcast. Otherwise we'll be here all day. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I'm going to have a uh, P Ross. He, he did a, a previous episode with me. We're, we're going to have him on the show and we're going to discuss that because he loves homage watches. He doesn't have a problem with them and he's cool with them, but I do. I do. And well, that's yeah. why when, when I said buy something similar to, I'm not saying, hey, buy something that looks exactly like it because yeah. in, in my mind, it's and, and I, I think I said this before, is like, um, you know, like here in the US, I don't know if they release this worldwide, but of course, uh, everybody knows Rolls Royce, the Phantom, of course, everybody knows that car. Well, Chrysler released a Chrysler 300. 300, 300, <laughs> yeah, a few, few years ago. And when I first saw that, I, I thought it was a joke. I was like, yeah. wait what the hell like that that's trying to look like a rolls royce and then the the funniest thing was when people started converting and putting the grills to look like the phantom and, yeah and and i'm like oh my goodness so all these people that don't have that kind of money are driving around pretending like they're driving something else and to me it's like that's not the definition of success at least not in my mind uh and success you know, the and funny thing is is starting you own one no i'm just kidding (laughs) but when i lived in miami i saw tons of those like converted 300 c's and the more people tried to convert them to look more like a rolls royce it looked worse like the original (laughs) one was actually pretty cool i liked that like cross grill that it had it had a lot of good presence from its own merits from like the differences that it had with the phantom as well (laughs) but the more people tried to make it look more like a phantom it just looked ridiculous and funny enough and that is a parallel to my steinhardt I genuinely like it more the less it looks like a Rolex. Like, I haven't worn yeah, on a bracelet in a long time. I've been trying to look to see how I can take the Cyclops off so I can, like, let it live out its differences from the actual Rolex. Yeah, 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 for sure. That sort of, like, actually makes it more fun, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I just picked up um, uh, the Timex, the the Q. It, came, it, it, it got released a few months ago and it completely sold out, which blew everybody away because they're like, what the hell? How is this little quartz cheap Timex that costs one hundred and seventy nine dollars, which is kind of a lot for for a Timex? How did it sell out so much? And I I, I kind of looked at it the first time around. And I didn't really, I wasn't really a fan. And I think it was more the bracelet because I'm like, eh, I don't, I've never owned a Timex, and I was like, okay, that's a great watch, great watch company. But to me, that's very, very, very entry level, you know. Uh, so I didn't really look at too much into it. But then when the hype came around again, that they're like, hey, we're going to re-release this thing again in the limited run, I started looking into it. And I'm like, you know, I've always been a fan of GMT and the, and the Pepsi. And I was actually going to pick up uh, Seiko SKX and 009. But I'm like, nah, why would I have the same watch in two colorways? It just doesn't make sense. But the more I looked at this time, I'm like, you know what? It's very charming because it kind of has some kind of reminiscence to to the Rolex, to the Pepsi, but not really. It has its own character. And it is only 179 bucks. I mean, it is kind of a lot of money, but at the same time, if you think about it, it's less than 200 bucks. So anyways, as soon, I woke up early on Friday like an idiot, 
woke up early and here I am refreshing my browser. And as soon as it went on sale, <laughs> I bought it. But I did tell my wife something and I'm just going to be transparent with everybody. I told her, look, if I get it and I really don't like it because I'm kind of buying sight on scene, I could always sell it. And I know I could sell it at a profit, even if it's a little bit, because these are limited runs. And I really do want to review it on the channel. And she was like, okay, yeah, go for it. But I think it's a very charming little thing. But again, I'm I'm against homage watches. But if something kind of looks like something else, but it's not trying to be something else, then I'm cool with it, you know? So yeah, I'm definitely gonna, I need to do my homework a little bit more and have some examples to talk to uh, P about it. And I know he's gonna bring some examples to the table. And I know, of course, he loves his Invicta. So he's gonna throw a lot of that into the mix, which that's another point in our in our previous podcast, we talked about watch haters and Invicta. And it's like, look, you got to respect everybody for their individuality, right? If Invicta is not doing anything to you personally, and they didn't go against you or your family, then why do you hate against them? Like, yeah, just because you don't like them, you don't have to go online and bash anybody, you know? So that's yeah, just kind of my like, take. Yeah, if you don't have like, if you don't have to wear it, then why does it matter? You know, exactly. what someone else yep. is wearing on their wrist. Exactly. That's why I, I'm I'm kind of like, should I talk about homage pieces and say what I feel? But I'm like, well, look, at the end of the day, I'm not. If I'm, I'm just giving my opinion, but I'm not online yeah. trolling anybody. I'm not making fun of people. If that's what you want to spend your money on, go for it. If that's what makes you yeah. feel like a million bucks, go for it, you know? So. Yeah. And everyone has like their own experience and journey. Like my views on having an homage piece have changed by having one, you know, sometimes yeah. you have to try mm -hmm. it out to see if you like it or not. Yeah, one absolutely. Thing I will say that is great about that, um, that Timex is that it manages to make a Pepsi that doesn't look like a Rolex. Because Rolex has just yeah. monopolized that colorway. Like, it, it's near impossible. Everyone who tries to make a GMT with red and blue inevitably gets compared to Rolex. Whereas that Correct. Timex, yep. I mean, obviously, it was I think it was a reissue of an older model that they made back um, back a while back. From the 70s. Like inspired yep. Yeah. yeah. But it looks completely unique. Like, I don't look at that and think, oh, that looks like a GMT Master 2. <laughs> it's like oh it's got that it's got that sort of um that really cool bezel uh, sorry not bezel design the bracelet design um just like the shape of the case as well is completely different to what you would see on on a gmt case so like i think that's really cool is that they managed to make a pepsi that doesn't look like a rolex every other company has to like either surrender to looking like a rolex or go for different colorways just to avoid the comparison yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I'm actually looking at a meme here. I looked it up online, and it's funny. Somebody created a meme. They have the Rolex GMT, the Pepsi. They have the Tudor GMT, and then they have the Timex uh, Q GMT. And on the Rolex, they put Pepsi. Then on the Tudor, they put Diet Pepsi. And then on the on the Timex, they put Pepsi Zero Sugar. So it's kind of like it goes yeah. down the line. But it's funny. If you're looking at these, you're you're 100% right. I mean, they... That it does have that Pepsi color, but you got the the Rolex with the twenty four hour marker vessel. But timing it a little bit different. They actually went with just from the one to the twelve, which is pretty cool because that's pretty easy to read. The only thing I do have to say about this Timex is that on the minute hand, they have that little um, circle, so it doesn't have a Mercedes circle per se. But when you look at it, it kind of just at a quick glance, you're like, oh, kind of, it kind of. It plays tricks with you know in your yeah. mind just because of that but but they didn't they didn't put the mercedes logo on there and and then even the uh seconds hand uh it doesn't have that little arrow like the rolex does uh and then the yeah. fultina i don't know some people I, I i love fultina some people don't like it i like it it's pretty cool and then also i love the fact that it has a, the a day and a date 
because to me, especially being in, in sales, it's always super beneficial to be able to look down and be like, okay, cool, what day of the week? I should know what day of the week it is and what day, but you know, it definitely helps because sometimes you, you're talking and you look down, you're like, oh, okay, cool, it's Tuesday, it's whatever, you know? So I think it's pretty charming. I, I think if they would have released it in an automatic version, I think they would have killed it, to be honest with you. And maybe oh, yeah. they, they might, I don't know. But because it is a reissue, and this is when they were in the whole quartz crisis, maybe that's why they didn't. But uh, but I think it's pretty charming. So we'll we'll see. Once I once I get it on uh, in the metal and on the wrist, we'll we'll see. Yeah, very nice. Looking forward to seeing that. And congrats on actually getting one. Yeah, no. Since the first run sold out so quick. You know, I was I was a little disappointed. I'm not gonna lie. When when uh, so I bought it on Friday, and half it was like twelve or one p.m. or something like that. It sold out. So it sold out again. But then Timex made a a little release on their uh, on Instagram, basically saying. Oh, don't worry. We'll have more next week, or or more coming. And I was like, "What? Like, come on! What? So you're just playing with people doing these limited yeah. runs, but you have more coming in in the container? Like, I, I don't know how, how feel many about they that. can sell. Limited <laughs> to how many they can sell. That's exactly right. But before we we sign off here, I know we kind of touched a little bit about well, before the podcast, we we when we were talking about uh, perceived value and value and watches and everything, we were actually talking about two watches that just got released, and I talked about. In my previous podcast, the Bell and Ross, the BR05, and the Aura's Pro Pilot X. And it's funny, we both kind of had the same feeling about that Bell and Ross that we don't like it. Uh, and, and why is it that you don't like it? Um, well, I mean, for one thing, the biggest thing is, is for me is the bracelet, just because it's like they're clearly completely like aping the, the Nautilus mm-hmm. with that bracelet. Like, I give it the, as much benefit as a doubt as I can like some people say oh with the screws it kind of looks like the ap um but if you look at the rest of their like sort of instrument panel watches the square ones they all have those screws in them and no one makes that comparison the only reason people make it now is because it's in steel so i give them the benefit of the doubt on the case and i get that they wanted to make an integrated bracelet look that's fine you know in the same way it's like if they decided they wanted to make a dive watch Mm -hmm. but did they really have to make the bracelet look exactly like the nautilus or like 90 percent you know, like, I feel, especially because Bell & Ross is, like, they're a design company. You know, they don't make their own movements. They buy them. They're ma- they, their primary thing is their designs. It would have been nice if they sort of played their own strength and just designed something that was properly unique as opposed to kind of just pandering and jumping on, like, the Nautilus bandwagon. Yeah, no. Um, that's my main reason for not really liking it that much. Um, the design itself, in general, isn't quite for me, but I could always appreciate the uniqueness of those instrument panel style ones. But with this one, I just feel they kind of, they just tried to, to pander a little bit too much with it. Yeah. And, uh, and I've heard some people even make the comparison to on the dial to uh, Panerai. And I I'm looking at it online right now. And I think they did cause they got that 12, six and nine and Panerai has something very similar. So yeah, if they're a design company, like you said, they're using this Alita movement uh and they're selling for five grand i really think they're just jumping on that um uh, on that wagon of sports watches steel sports watches and they they know that there's scars there's scarcity right now with rolex and with Patek and even some ap so they're like hey how can we make something look cool look very similar and by very similar i mean just a straight up copy of <laughs> the nautilus uh, bracelet yeah and maybe you get some people on board and it's it, it's funny because every watch person uh, is kind of clowning on them, right? And saying, oh, you know, I mean, including ourselves, 
But then you take somebody that's not really into watches or knows much about watches. They just kind of seen the Nautilus. They've seen the Royal Oak. And these people have some money to throw around. Well, when they see this, they're like, oh, heck, is this available? It looks pretty cool. Because maybe in their mind, they don't they don't know the comparisons, right? They don't, oh, well, that looks like this. And we know because we're into watches. But regular people, non-watch people, they just look at this and it looks cool. They're like, oh, that looks cool. How much yeah. is it? Oh, it's less than $5,000. And it's an automatic cool and it's available let me pick it up so to me it was more of a cash grab uh move by bell and ross but i really think ultimately in my personal opinion at least it's gonna it's gonna hurt their their uh prestige or perceived value as a company from all the watch people that I, I might be completely wrong i mean they might sell out of these things and become like the next hot thing i, I don't know that's just my opinion that i to me it's an homage piece to be honest with you and i Again, I don't like homage pieces. But then on the same token, we look at Oris, you know, the pro pilot. Uh, people have mixed feelings about them. Um, I love it. I, I Everything about it. I mean, in-house movement, the way that it looks, uh, the case size, maybe it looks a little big at, I think, 42. They should have made it at 40. But I think it's really cool. 10-day power reserve uh, really is 12 is kind of what they're saying. And the price, I think, is the main thing that's scaring people away, right? It's 7 plus thousand dollars so how do you feel about that watch yeah um man like a lot of people can't say it's too expensive for an oris but when you factor out you know you look at what it comes with so it's seven thousand six hundred on the bracelet first off it's a unique bracelet design we're just complaining about the bell and ross just aping the tech bracelet the style of this like with these scales like it reminds me of um on the bulgari opto by retro they had a Mm -hmm. rubber strap that had like these sort of like armor plate rubber scales on it sort of thing this kind of looks like that but it's obviously done in titanium and that in itself is like no this isn't just another steel watch they bought it to make it in titanium so it looks pretty big but it's probably really light um and skeletonized dial i mean skeleton dials aren't easy to make um Correct. you know you have to pretty much engrave and try and get rid of as much of the movement as possible while still making it structurally sound because obviously it becomes fragile if you make it too thin and have you know really little um, sort of like bridges and stuff like that if they're too thin they can be fragile and they can crack or, or be much more subject to damage with shock so if you think about that it offers a really good value proposition I mean I was looking at things to try and match that sort of triple thread that it's titanium 10 day power reserve from a manufacturer and a skeleton dial you know you look there's the Zenith Defy Classic which I reviewed a few uh, a few months ago that one's around 7,500 new that I guess would be the closest in price and obviously you know zenith has that history with the primero they're both um they're both manufacturer movements so like there you can see some competition but at the end of the day of course you know not everyone knows zenith you know i was talking to a couple watch uh watch dealers and they said at the end of the day someone has to really want a zenith to buy one so you can't really play that brand card but no one seems to complain and say the zenith is too expensive and then if you try and attack the power reserve angle well, you know, the Panerai Luminor, for example, which has eight days, most Panerais, you know, there's a lot of them are manual wine, so they have these crazy eight-day power reserves. But that's 7,400, and that's leather only if you want it in titanium. Or if you want a bracelet Panerai, the Luminor Marina, that's 8,500 in steel. And that's automatic with a three-day power reserve and both of them with solid dials. So, like, if you think about it, it's priced really competitively. You know, yeah. it, it, it stands up to some pretty heavy hitters. And I think it's great that Oris 
you know, Ursa has always been really open about their manufacturer movements versus their bought ones. They don't bother like renaming it to like an Oris caliber designation. They say, you know, it's an ETA or it's a Salida if it's if it's one of their off the shelf movements. But I love that now they're moving towards making their own manufacturer movements. And a ten day power reserve is crazy because you think if you're if you have that in a collection, you know, most power reserves are usually two days, maybe three if on, on some of the newer watches. You know, you still have to wind it anyway. So the fact that they ditched the automatic but gave it a 10-day power reserve, I think that's something really cool and really practical. And I'm assuming that also helped make it a little bit thinner as well because they don't have to have the winding mass. So I think it's a really cool watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with you. And and just kind of speaking of uh, brand and, and that perceived value by people, yeah, when people think or is it. And, and that's what I kept hearing in, in uh, podcasts, uh, YouTube, like, but it's an Oris. How can they be selling? And it's like, uh, like man, it's so frustrating. Like, okay, pretend like it's not an Oris. Just like you said, look at the merit. Look at what it brings. Look at the materials, the finishing, uh, the specs. I mean, it's incredible. If this thing said Rolex on the dial, this thing would be selling for $50,000 and it will be sold out and you'd be on this imaginary waiting list that is just, it's just crazy. That's why... I don't hate on Rolex and I always keep talking negative about them. It's not that I hate them. It's just that they, they're they held in such a pedestal where it's like, you can't, it, Rolex can't do wrong. But it's a, a com- symptom of being at the top. You know, when Man. you're at the top, obviously you can't help but criticize what's at the top. Yeah. Like I, I, for me, it's the same. Like I have a lot of respect for Rolex, but at the same time, they're open to a ton of criticism because they're so good at what they do. But that's yeah. the nature of the beast, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and then again, at, at the end of the day, if you really think about it, it's not the company itself, it's the followers. It's the followers that I have a, a, a problem with because a lot of these Rolex collectors, they just talk down on every single other brand. They just think that because they own a Rolex and the Rolex fanboys, they're better than everybody else. So it's not Rolex themselves coming out and doing or making these claims or whatever. So I don't have a problem with Rolex itself. I guess it's more the, the followers of Rolex. Uh, and not everybody, of course, but uh, but yeah, this whole Auras thing. I mean, they, I did. I think I really think they hit the nail on the head. And not only that, but they understand uh, the community. They understand social media because they're doing well. I mean, Adrian from Bark and Jack, they flew him out to Hong Kong or whatever to go check out this watch. And Adrian, really, if you if you, I don't know if you saw his video, but when he was releasing or talking about this watch. I don't think he really liked it. I mean, he liked some things of it, but the the sense that I got overall is that he didn't really like it. And that was kind of cool because it's like, look, they literally spent thousands of dollars on your flight ticket and your food and this and that. And you went over there and you didn't give it a glowing review, which I appreciate because like he was being honest, but he did give it uh, props where props were due, you know, in his opinion. I mean, he is a Rolex fanboy, so... You know, I don't know if maybe he was thinking more Rolex when he was looking at this, but this thing is on its own little category. And yeah, if you want to check out a really, really cool video, go to Horology House, that YouTube channel. He made an amazing video on this watch, Macro Shots. Uh, Chris did a uh, really good job. So, but anyways, that's that's that on that. And so, yeah, I think we talked a lot about a lot of good different uh, points here. And I, I think uh, whoever's listening, Look, we're not trying to sway you in the in a way of luxury or, you know, entry level. Do whatever speaks to you. It's your money at the end of the day. We're just here to talk about our own personal experiences. And at the end of the day, I think we both agree that 
luxury watches have their place in the market because of everything we just talked about. Also, entry-level watches have their place as well. Uh, it all depends on your lifestyle, what you're trying to accomplish, and where your watch collecting, um, I guess, the goal is, is, is trying to be at the end of the day. So, so anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, anything, I think wherever you get into this hobby, you know, like it's, for example, like even though my first luxury piece was this Omega, you know, if I trace back, I had to start out with my with my little quartz two so which I still which I still keep. I love to death. I don't look down on it. And I think the most important thing is that people get into this hobby. You know, more and more people that just not wearing a watch or they're wearing an Apple Watch, and it's like you know, yeah, cool. If you're not into it, you're not into it. But obviously, like the more this community grows, the more we can, I guess, share and you know make this something that uh you know it, it's fun you know just just talking to watch people and hearing people's different views and it's such a cool hobby to just explore that you know i think it's really important not to look down on how anyone gets into it whether it's looking down on them because they're spending too much on a watch or too little on a watch at the end of the day these are all watches we're all into this hobby and i think it's really important to recognize that every watch has its value because because someone else has seen it you know the reason why rolexes are selling for one and a half is because enough people feel that it is worth that much i personally don't think they're worth above retail but i can't deny that the market is where it is and that means that there's people who see value in it and it's not wrong for people to see value subjectively because at the end of the day even the cheapest even the cheapest watch is a luxury because we don't really need them to tell the time <laughs> correct, anymore. Correct. You know? Correct. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree 100%. So, uh, no, I think we, we talked about a lot of good points and gave our opinions. And uh, I really do hope to have you on the channel again. We could discuss maybe something completely different uh, because we both are YouTubers. And it's funny, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but if you go, well, they don't know this about me. Uh, I do have a Spanish channel on YouTube, which is not doing great because I haven't really put a lot of time into it. Uh, but there is a huge Latin American um, uh, people that are, are in the world that are that are fans as well. And they don't speak English and they speak Spanish. And something about Fred is if you go to his channel, he does a great job of doing an English version of his uh, topic, what he's going to talk about and discuss. And then he does the same thing in Spanish, which is incredible it's super difficult and i and i applaud you for that <laughs> so yeah we both kind of have the bilingual thing going on so it's pretty cool <laughs> yeah yeah and it's cool seeing as well like how the perspective there's like some will overlap and some will be completely different in uh in the spanish-speaking community yeah you know especially right. because like in latin america mexico and to a degree spain as well you know like obviously uh purchasing power is different you know Correct. the way that certain luxury items are perceived as completely different but also you get really you get really cool insights and that's for me at least that's helped me appreciate the whole spectrum as well not just you know seeing english channels talking about sort of entry level stuff but also you know hearing from my own audience in spanish where you know people might be aspiring to a luxury product but obviously you need to get in at some point and for me it's great just seeing people into this because at, at one point in my life i was that person who was looking up thinking oh one day i'll get you know, an Omega or something like that. And now, thankfully, I'm able to do that. But for me, if I can inspire more people to do that, that's great. And if I can know about other people's watch journeys, you know, every little bit helps, you know. And I think it's important to always sort of stay humble that no matter where we are on our journeys, we can always learn from other people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's a great topic we can maybe talk about uh, in another podcast is how the world just differs. Now, here, people in the United States, we look at uh, brands pretty much, I think, the same way. But everybody in Latin America, maybe Asia, looks at things different. And just one prime example, like I said, we could talk more about it in another episode, is Rado. So Rado here in the United States, we're like, Rado, what? I mean, we kind of heard about it. But I know in Asia, maybe in the Middle East, Rado is the watch to have, you know, that, and they look, yeah, you know, it, it, that's just what it is. Or like Omega, like you said, um, in Latin, and here in the U.S., it's like, yeah, Omega's okay. I mean, they don't compare it to Rolex, which in my opinion it is in part with Rolex, but other parts of the world, maybe Latin America, they look at an Omega like, oh man, that's a, that's a grail piece for me. So yeah. perceive, again, uh, different social economic uh, classes throughout the world. And it's interesting. It's always good to have an open mind and know about different things. So, but anyways, yeah, we could definitely talk about that another time, but I, I do want to thank you for coming on board. And uh, do you want to let the people know where they could find you? Yeah, man. Well, first off, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the channel. I really appreciate it. And, you know, it was great being able to finally make this happen. And, you know, like, that's the great thing about this YouTube thing is you meet people and, you know, that's why it's always important. That's why I always read all my comments, make sure I reply as much because you never know who you're going to meet. Um, so thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on, on this and hopefully it can be on our next one. Um, but, yeah, people can find me on YouTube, of course, Shaluso, S-H-A-H space L-U-S-S-O. A lot better than my original name, which was Luxuriality. And um, on Instagram, it's at Shaluso, Facebook slash Shaluso. Or they can find my newish website, which I haven't really promoted enough, which is Shaluso.com. Okay. Uh, there you'll find a couple, uh, couple exclusive articles and also a lot of written and sort of more elaborated um, versions of some of my videos that I do as well. But yeah, that's where everyone can find me. Very and, uh, and yeah, and thanks for having me on, man. No, absolutely. And and what do you tell everybody? Because I I had this question. I was like, Shaluso, what what is that? Why don't you explain to everybody real briefly, kind of what so, that is? What does it mean? So yeah, so so previously the channel was called Luxuriality, but no one really got it, and also it was a bit of a pain to pronounce in Spanish as well. People didn't know how to spell it, so I was like, all right, I got to change the name. So I had to think of something that was easy to pronounce and spell in Spanish and in English. And so Sha is uh, it's uh, it's a type of um, it's a type of royalty uh, that was in Persia, um, what's now Iran, and then Luso is luxury in Italian. So I just put those two together, and it kind of and it kind of stuck. Very cool. No, I I I think it's very 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 cool, and and the fact that you've uh, we probably didn't talk about this, but you've you've lived in so many different places, and that's something that I find very intriguing. You've been living uh in how many countries now uh right now this is the eighth country that i live that's in. insane yeah <laughs> that is insane my friend i've only lived in two countries mexico and then the u.s and i thought that was crazy but you definitely take the <laughs> the win for hey, that well, one i but... haven't lived in mexico so you've lived in one more country that i haven't lived in yet, <laughs> so oh man well at least you got out of the u.s in time because uh, let me tell you yeah. things here are crazy so <laughs> Yeah, I got out of got out of the US before I was politely asked to leave. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny, man. All right, well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate having you on and doing one of these again. And for anyone listening who hasn't subscribed yet to Miguel's channel, make sure you do because he does put out some pretty cool stuff, I must admit.
Oh, look. No, thanks for the plug. <laughs> he's just, <laughs> no, people, he's just saying that because he's on the show. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, hey, thanks to everybody uh, for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, I'm going to try to put out more uh, content. And uh, yeah, anybody that's uh, is a watch lover, thank you so much for listening. And go to my channel, SoCal Watch Reviews on YouTube. Or you can find me on Instagram, SoCal Watch Reviews. Uh, and yeah, send me a DM, send me a message if you're listening and you think you want to be on the channel, on the podcast, uh, let me know. We, we could definitely talk about it and I'm open to it. So anyways, thank you to everybody. And as always, remember, stay humble.